Hello, you're listening to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. On this episode, you find me in Tunbridge Wells speaking to Dr. Mike Martin, author of a book released just this week, How to Fight a War. It's a chill, blustery afternoon in Tunbridge Wells on a day in March, a month that just keeps on giving. But it's lovely to be sat here outside Sankey's Old Fish Market with Senior Visiting Research Fellow in the Department of War Studies at King's College and author of books that include Why We Fight and his new book, due for release by the time this goes out, How to Fight a War, Mike Martin. Mike, hey, how are you? You've been canvassing this morning as you I were have yeah me. my other guys I'm the parliamentary candidate for the Liberal Democrats in Tunbridge Wells well we can get on to that because of course war is politics by right? other means politics exactly, is yeah. war it's just whether you have violence or not the point you make very early on now I want to start really just by thanking you for passing on to me and thousands of others your informed perspective on the current war in Ukraine ever since it began last year the alerts the threads the badly drawn maps on Microsoft Paint they've hang all on, helped hang on, hang enormously would you Bad. Sorry, are you confusing me for some other Twitter guy? I don't. It's a bit rude, mate. You want to have lunch with me and stuff, and then you start out by dissing my maps. I mean, I never said that they weren't informative. But they're no Picasso. I I most I mostly write them sitting on the toilet on my iPhone. <laughs> Uh, I'll be honest, look, around the time of Putin's invasion last year, I was convinced that in a world already steeped in grief, anxiety and distrust coming out of a pandemic, it would only take the smallest nudge to send us sailing into total oblivion. And I really believe that that was what we were witnessing. But I've since learned that it's never quite as simple as that, that actually nobody who embarks on a war does so without understanding just how complex a task that is. And that even the most calculating world leaders can miscalculate Mm. spectacularly. Mm. What was your first thought? when you heard it confirmed that Russian troops had rolled over into Ukraine? I thought, that's really annoying because I just put out a thread last week explaining why Russia wasn't going to roll over the border into Ukraine. It was disbelief um, because it doesn't make sense. And I, I, I know that war's not logical in the sense that the losses almost always outweigh the gains for almost everyone. So so why would you go to war? Of course, we're going to come on to that. It's, deep within our psyche and it's emotional rather than rational but it was so stark just the simple mathematics of it you know to invade a country like ukraine i don't know you'd want a million troops or something that the germans in world war ii had two million troops you know approaching two million troops in army group south putin went across the border with 150,000, and his aims were very grand at that time they were overthrow they were new government they were you know remove the nazi regime if this were tv you could see me doing air quotes So, yeah, it was complete disbelief. And it then became, in the week or two afterwards, you could start to see the Ukrainian resistance, which we all saw. But you could also see, if you looked into the performance of the Russian military, huge, huge, huge problems. Very, very poor morale of their troops, poor training, equipment breaking down, logistics not working. And when you have those fundamentals that don't work, your war's not going to work all the reasons you could give as to why this was a miscalculation are intrinsically tied to the themes in the book, in fact, why you wrote the book. But if I could just ask about Putin in all of this, why do you think he 
misunderstood or miscalculated so mm. spectacularly. Mm. As you say, for somebody who has been hiding in the wing, a kind of crouching tiger on the world stage for so long, saying very little, giving very little away, appearing to be able to wait it out with a huge army. Has he been a crouching tiger? I mean, you know, he went into Chechnya in the 90s and smashed it. Mm. Went into Georgia in 2008. Crimea 2014 and also the Donbass. So, you know, part one of the Ukrainian war 2014. Mm. Then went into Syria in 2015. Since then, we've seen a huge amount of activity in Africa, you know, mostly through Wagner. But Wagner is backed up by the, a lot of stuff from the Russian state. So, you know, into Mali, Central African Republic, Burkina Faso. Some of the coups in those countries were organised by Wagner, right? So there's, I think there's been a huge amount of activity. Which would suggest that Ukraine was surely next on the list, except he was so underprepared for it. And you have to wonder why was he so underprepared for Ukraine, given that he'd had so much practice elsewhere? Yeah, because it's about, I think what, what Putin, and this probably speaks to his background, uh, you know, he was a kind of KGB guy, used to running psychological influence operations, all that kind of stuff. He's been very good at operating at just below the threshold, right, of generating a Western response. And he's been, what he's been absolutely brilliant at is nudging up to that threshold, but not going beyond it. You know, so Crimea was done with the little green men and, and then it was annexed. And really, yeah, there were sanctions and stuff, but most of these were interpreted by Putin as slaps on the wrists. Um, you know, after Chechnya... Putin was still being courted by the West at that point, you know. You know, Blair was going over and saying, well, we need to, you know, these guys, are, he's the modern reformer, you know. And, and OK, so Georgia was a slap on the wrist, but really nothing happened after Georgia. And then after Crimea in 2014, OK, yes, there was more, Syri you know, then there were proper sanctions and all the rest of it. But really, you know, Syria, nothing happened. Absolutely nothing's happened about the various bits of activity in Russia. And so he looked at all of that and saw his interpretation, not unreasonable from that evidence, I think, was that the West was pretty disunited and not that keen on confronting him. And, and like I said, were I him, I, I, you know, I might draw the same conclusions. And it was all compounded by the, the way that he runs the government, which is, you know, he's been in power for 20 years, as we know, and progressively he's gained a greater stranglehold on power. And that means uh, sidelining people who are not in his camp. And that's fine. But the, the weakness of that is that you end up with everyone saying, yes, I think that's a great idea, Mr. Putin. And you progressively lose touch with what reality is. And if you, if you want to be good at strategy... You've got to have a realistic view of the world. That's the most important thing if you have a realistic view of the world. And he didn't have that realistic view because everyone had been saying, yeah, great. This book is a reference guide, as you put it, for the commander-in-chief of a nation's military. And you write from the outset that if the reader clears one chapter, it should probably be the chapter on strategy, since yeah. strategy yeah. is, as you argue, yeah. supreme above all else yeah. in warfare. Why is strategy so important? Why is having a plan and a strategy completely different? In the parlance of everyday business language, people are like use the these terms interchangeably, oh. don't they? Yeah, oh, and it, the clearly it gets, it gets your back up, so <laughs> yeah. please, yeah, enlighten us. Um, so why is strategy the most important? Okay, well, let's start with what a strategy is, right? Which sort of answers both of those questions. A strategy is the goals that you have and it's the way in which you are going to achieve those goals. So that's a bit like a plan, right? And that's why it annoys me that those two things are used synonymously because a plan is only one third of a strategy. Mm. And then it's 
how you're going to resource that plan to achieve those goals, right? And people who talk about strategy say it's about ways, ends and means. The ways is the plan, the ends are the goals and the means are the resources that you're going to bring to it. But if you don't have those three things, you don't have a plan. You don't, oh, you see, there we go, there we go. go. (laughs) You don't have a strategy. Um, You either have a plan or you have a set of goals, but you don't have a strategy. And the most common mistake that people make is they they have a set of goals or they have a plan, but they don't have a strategy. And, and the process of strategy formation is about balancing those three things. I guess the best way to describe it is a kind of conversation. And this is often how strategies are formed. You've got a political leader who's setting vision. I want to invade Ukraine, whatever. And you've got experts, usually generals or officials, who know about military force. And they will say, well, Mr. Politician, I mean, that I think those goals are a bit, we don't have the resources or, you know, how are we going to do that? And then how about we do this instead? Let's do this other thing. Maybe that's a different goal. And he goes, no, 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 no. Okay, I understand we can't do that. Okay, how about we go for this objective C? How about that? And then they go, well, yeah, okay, we could do that. But probably we need some more resources in this area. We don't have enough of it, you know. And then so that you have this discussion and then, oh, how are we going to set about doing that? Because that's quite difficult, but we could just about do it. So what's the clever plan we're going to come up with to get us there? And it's that discussion between ways ends and means right often represented by one person in a discussion or it can be you know between two people but traditionally but you know the democracy certainly is between the politicians and the kind of senior generals who set that that conversation up and that's that out of that comes your strategy and of course all of that rests on all of those conversations you know is that strategy realistic come back to realism that all rests on intelligence so how well you understand the world and particularly how well you understand your enemy if you're going in to fight another country or another army you need to have a really good appreciation of your enemy something else that putin got wrong he assumes that the ukrainian army was i don't know like drug taking homosexual nazis was a kind of that was his vibe at the beginning of the war and it turns out that actually they've got much higher morale and because they're defending their homelands they're fighting much 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 better than the russian troops are Hello. Did you want to order a glass of wine? Yeah, I will have a glass of wine, please, if that's okay. Uh, Could I have a medium glass of pickpool, please? Um, I actually have been looking at the menu for some time, and I'm really keen to try your lobster linguine. Could you tell us about that wine? Here we go. Bags of natural acidity. (laughs) Sounds like it's describing a person, doesn't it? (laughs) Light, light, crisp, clean. And the perfect attribute, as you said, to match oysters or mussels. I'd like the lobster linguine as well. Thank you very much. So keen was I to get into the book that I forgot to ask the essential question. Why have we ended up at Sankey's Old Fish Market? It's just amazing. It's just amazing. So things started as a fishmonger and then there's a restaurant uptown and this is more of a a fish bar, I suppose you'd call it. But champagne and oyster bar. And I think that the, the Sankey family is 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 really well known in in Tunbridge Wells. In fact, in fact, Matt Sankey is a local councillor as well. He was sort of recently elected as a local councillor. If we divide our focus into strategy, training, logistics, morale, this book suggests anyway that developed democratic nations are generally better 
at cultivating strong armies than autocratic ones. Mm. Uh, and that's to do with several things. Rigid conscription methods, poor training, centralized mm. command. Mm. If we take access to intelligence out of the equation for a minute, yeah. why is a large, well-funded, but poorly trained army less likely to win a war than a small, well-trained, but poorly funded army? In other words, why is training so important? Training has become progressively more important as the levels of technology and war rise and rise and rise and rise and rise. And, and I think you, you mentioned the other word that's the key word there, which is conscripted versus volunteer. And the big difference is, so, you know, Russia, North Korea, uh, they bring people into their army and it's for a period of time, let's say two years or something, right? Two years is not really enough to, you know, you can train a kind of basic soldier, but, you know, to get a tank crew working together and then to, not just the training, but to then give them the experience of working in a tank brigade or a division or, you know, it's a, it's a much longer process to get those bigger formations working together successfully. And so conscription and poor training often go together because you're bringing large numbers of the population in for a short period of time, which gives you lots of manpower, but you don't have time to train it properly. And because you're paying for lots of people, you don't often have time to fund more complicated training. Mm. And so you end up with a lot of mass, but it's not that mobile for instance you know they can't use high levels of technology surveillance technologies all that kind of stuff and then you know on the flip side you have a volunteer army where well in the british army you sign up for 22 years right not initially you'll come and do three years or whatever and then but you're offered the chance to sign up for 22 years and i mean imagine how much training and experience you can amass in that time and it has not just for that individual but it has a synergistic effect right everybody's boats float up in a volunteer army that's smaller more highly trained and and with higher levels of technology so why is that army likely to beat the mass army Bakhmut, which is the sort of story du jour at the moment where russia's been trying to take this town in eastern donbass and how's it been doing it it's been it's been pushing forward infantry a bit of artillery but it's but it's just a mass there's no sort of clever okay we'll try and cut through here and get around the back and we'll get some decent surveillance assets to work out where we can hit their logistics command so that bit at the front collapses whereas a, a a more highly trained volunteer army with high levels of technology is likely to have two things about the way it operates that makes it able to take on one of those mass conscripted armies firstly it's more likely to operate some sort of type of manoeuvre warfare, right? Where you're aiming not to steamroll the enemy, which is what the Russians are trying to do, but you're aiming to dislocate them, take out their command and logistics and then get the, get the enemy troops to surrender, right? Or just take out some key assets or their commanders so that the front collapses. It's all yeah. it's based in psychology, right? One of the key points you make throughout the book is that if the key aim of a war is to change your enemy's mind through the use of lethal violence, Absolutely. one of the ways of doing that, aside from using lethal violence, is disorientating them and confusing them and making it harder and harder for them to make decisions, which is what the Ukraine army have excelled at from Absolutely. day one. And that has come down to training Absolutely. as well as access to Absolutely. intelligence, of course. Do you think that autocratic nation states secretly know that their armies are riddled with the weaknesses that you describe in this book, would a North Korean general reading it, say, be nodding along with you deep down? They are stuck because the second thing that Western armies do is they have decentralised commands, 
where people are told what to achieve but not how to achieve it and they're able to act on their own initiative it mirrors the democratic society that we come from known as mission command mission right? command autocratic armies are never going to institute that because they would find that people didn't do you know you need more highly trained troops and you also need a system where people are used to making decisions for themselves whereas in autocracies people are given less chance to make decisions for themselves they're just told what to do so to come back to your point you know would a north korean general well I think there's a question about whether Putin or the North Korean general or Kim, Il- Kim Il-sung or whatever are getting a true picture of what's going on. I think they see a parade, the May Day parade in Moscow and think, look at my army, look at my missiles, look at my tanks. And they think that they have a strong army. And clearly, that's a misjudgment, you know, a further misjudgment that Putin made. He confused the parade grounds for operational performance. He can't surely be that stupid, though. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's stupid. I think it's... I think it's about psychology. It's about the bubbles that you live in. Right. I was out canvassing this morning and I actually had a, a, an experience I've never had before, which was meeting someone who initially said, oh, great, yeah, I'm a Lib Dem voter. And I'm like, cool. And then we had a chat and I actually managed to turn her off from voting to me, which is something I've never done before. Normally it's the other way around. Right. And So what happened? Well, what happened was she it became quite clear that she was a very, very strong anti-vaxxer, all right? And, and felt that the, the vaccines that most of us have had, the vast majority of us have had over the last, you know, two, three years because of COVID were part of, and there were various thoughts that she had about why it had been done that sort of didn't really match up with my understanding of the data, the science. You know, I've had a number of vaccines myself. I would advocate that everybody should have vaccines as long as their doctors should say they should have vaccines. And, and I said, well, look, I mean, I think we're going to disagree on that, you know, and I have to say I'm very pro-vaccination. You know, my daughter had you know, I have a one-year-old daughter. She had her one-year-old vaccines this week. Um, I'm very pro-vaccination. And she said, oh, I don't think I can vote for you then. Now, she was not a stupid person. Not at all. And yet we had these radically different worldviews. We lived in different bubbles. And we drew on different sources of information. And so you're saying, well, Putin's stupid. No, I just think he lives in a bubble come back to he's surrounded by yes men he has created we've seen those famous photos of him standing you know with that long table at the beginning of the war do you remember and all of his generals were sitting at the other end i mean that's obviously pretty funny but it's a metaphor for his isolation and you know his recent visit to mariupol you know i have no idea whether this is true but lots of people have looked at the photos and said the jawline is different from that person to putin so he's a body double right Mm -hmm. so i you know and I think there's a number of other things we can look at in the war that tell us that he's not getting the full picture. So, for example, last year in um, probably end of the summer or beginning of the autumn, Putin announced the annexation of four oblasts, regions, right, including the Donbass and Kherson and Zaporizhia. And very, very shortly after, I think about six weeks later, they had to do that pullout from Kherson. Remember, they pulled across the other side of the river because the Ukrainians had strangled their supply mm. lines. Now, at the point at which Putin announced that the annexation of those four territories, so becoming part of Russia, it was completely obvious to everyone that the Russians would be pulling out of Kherson. The Ukrainians had already hammered their supply lines. It was just a matter of time. So I'm assuming that the lieutenant colonels in Kherson and the brigadier generals and the generals that sit above them are aware of that information, right? They know that they haven't got the supply lines. They know the bridges have been hit, all the rest of it, right? But that information is clearly not reaching Putin. Right. Otherwise, he wouldn't announce 
announced the annexation. So there's something dysfunctional about the way the Russian state is operating at the moment. It's not making good decisions. He only sure. knows what he is told. What he knows. Like we all do. Yeah. We have our own biases and all the rest of it. And, you know, back to strategy formation, one of the main problems in strategy formation is the biases that we all have. Mm. We have in-group, out-group biases. Yeah. We have obsequiousness biases where we follow the leaders unthinkingly. We've got lots of them. And all of them mitigate against coming up with a realistic strategy. Although I still think that autocratic leaders ought to understand that autocracy can lead to them not being informed because they are surrounded by yes men. You know, there's just a there's such a lack of self-awareness around Putin about all of yeah. the weaknesses that yeah. he is imposing on himself yeah. Yeah, yeah, through yeah. this way of yeah. ruling. Well, do you think Xi's any more self-aware? Probably not, but this is why I don't understand. I mean, the, the one thing that democracies have going for them is that they're constantly doubting themselves. Because we're challenged in democracies, that's why we doubt ourselves. Because, you know, someone says to me, Mike, you know, you're advocating for this policy. Well, hang on, here's the other side of the fence, right? right? And, and I think, well, okay, that's interesting. You know, all my life I've been educated to think, to weigh up stuff. If you don't ever have that in a system, I think you can imagine just thinking that what you're saying is the right thing. And everyone's going, yeah, great idea. And we've seen, again, we've seen these photos are a joke, but they, they speak deep truths. And we've all seen the photos of the North Korean leader walking around. And he's got this group of generals around him and they're all so much bling. It's just ridiculous how much bling they've got on them. And they're all standing there with little notebooks like you get from Ryman's with pencils, like noting down what he says. And it's just a joke. But it speaks to a deeper truth, which is that there's no challenge in those systems. And so, yeah, we, demo we doubt in democracies, but democracy is by far the best system because we're able to rejuvenate. Let's talk about morale, because you mentioned bling there. Bling's no bad thing, right? I mean, there are a couple of quick-fire questions, <laughs> as well as why do armies perform marching drills? You can yeah, answer that yeah, in yeah. a moment. What is the morale function of looking cool as fuck in uniform? We all sense there's a point to it. Pride, because if you're proud in yourself, and in your team, then two things are likely to happen. You're more likely to hold together when you get into combat. And secondly, you're more likely to think, of course we can beat the enemy, because they're pff, those guys, and we're us. And we do pretty well at that, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, the regimental system, you know, I, I have a number of problems with the regimental system, but one of the things that it is very good at is instilling that pride. And so drills. on marching drills, why do armies perform marching drills? Synchronicity, because on a battlefield, you need to get large groups of people to operate in a kind of orchestrated, synchronized way. And that's whether it's a team of four or eight or 500, right? And what drill does is it very subtly, psychologically primes people. Because what drill is, is 30 people carrying out the same movements at the same time for a few hours, right? Um, and what that does is it very subtly primes them to just look around, see what, see what, what stage the person next to them is in going through that movement whether it's coming to attention or whatever and so you all start to move at the same time and if you think on a battlefield if you think of a fire team of four people and you're moving up two and two right you two go up two get down then the other two get down the other two get up and go forward so you're moving forward it's called pepper potting and you can imagine that's a kind of you need to orchestrate that perfectly because these guys need to start firing at the exact time that these guys get up and then these guys need to get down at the exact time that these guys need to stop firing and so on and so forth and what drill does is very subtly it impregnates people with a kind of psychological synchronicities to the people around them and so they're able to just operate in a much more choreographed uh, fashion on the battlefield infantry is like ballet 
is a dark sense of humor a natural byproduct of going to war, or, or yeah. is it in fact an essential survival tool? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely. I mean, I've, is it a survival tool? You know, we we used to say that when the soldiers are not laughing or complaining, then you've got a problem. If they're complaining, actually, that's 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 all good. Why is that a good thing? Because often their conditions are pretty shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're living in mud, and but presumably they feel they can complain, which shows that there's a, a exactly. degree of trust and cohesion yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Because everyone is living in the same conditions, what complaining is is a type of bonding, right? So when everyone's moaning about whatever we're all complaining about the same thing and so what that does is that bonds us because we're all living through the same experience right we'll get onto humor in a moment but yeah. the lobster linguine has just arrived oh, amazing even if we're not appearing on screen for this <laughs> it's good to know that you don't have bisque on your face doesn't yeah, it? well yeah. thank you very much yeah, no. thank you yeah how was the lobster linguine mike Stunning. Um, we were talking about a uh, sense of humour, how that develops in the face of war, um, and particularly to, to the way that people talk to one another, the sort of things that they might be encouraged to check in on. Mental health is clearly something that the, the modern army is talking about more and more, but I dare say that that's something that comes out in a different way when you're really facing war. So just humour, right? Let's talk about yeah. that first. You've got to frame that, along with complaining and drill and everything, it's all about bonding, right? It's all about, you know ribbing or taking the piss or complaining in a funny way or whatever it is it's all of that is about bonding because you're creating a shared experience with your teammates right and if if your training programs worked well in a military you will have created closely bonded teams and once you have those closely bonded teams and they're put through a, this terrible adversity they're in combat or whatever naturally that that humor will just come out and it's a way of maintaining just and what they when you say checking in actually what they're doing is like yeah still still in the team still belong yeah we're still tight still good that's what that is it's a proxy for this sense of extraordinary teamship and camaraderie that really you only you just don't have need for in civilian life but if you you know obviously if you're in combat that's the thing that keeps everyone alive is that sense of shared endeavor and the tightness of your team most important thing i have a couple of friends who are ex-military in one way or another and they've said to me on numerous occasions whenever we've met up to talk about work mainly that the thing that they miss and i think you might relate to this too do you know what i'm you know what i'm getting at already it's 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 their sense of purpose because they find that going into civilian life there's a distinct lack of leadership that boosts morale and gives meaning to work. Pretty poor leadership across whole swathes of civilian yes, life, right? Exactly. What's the number one reason why most people leave their jobs? Their boss. And there's a real aversion to civilian life in any way imitating military life. But actually, you wonder whether civilian life could benefit from some of the wisdom. Well, I'm, I'm glad you put those two things together. I mean, I think, I think yeah, some things can be taken across. Obviously, you know, the levels of aggression and all that stuff the, the things we want to keep them in their proper place um within you know the military environment but and you've also interestingly i don't know whether you did this consciously or unconsciously but you've been talking about purpose which is the thing that your friends miss right and i thought you were going to say camaraderie as the thing that they missed sure yeah because to my mind they're totally linked and one of the things that bonds a team is having a shared purpose but one of the things that gives 
emotional salience to a shared purpose is a team, right? And so to me, you can't separate the two. And that process of, again, come back to the training process, you know, people call it indoctrination or brainwashing or whatever. But if I call it socialization, you'd think, okay, well, that's less negative. But what are we saying? We're saying we're forming teams here and we're instilling in you a sense of higher purpose. And frankly, you need that sense if you're going to go and put your life in danger, right? You need to think that both you're fighting for your mates and there's something, there's a bigger thing that you're, that you're putting yourself at risk for. That's a necessary foundation for delivering military power. But I think a lot of our civilian organisations could be more effective if they had better leaders and a better sense of teamwork. And what I've often experienced is that, you know, the military takes people and says, we're going to give you a year's training in leadership. What other organization does that? It's cr- and, and most, in many civilian organizations, you get promoted into leadership positions by being good at your technical job. And then they say, oh, well, we'll put you in charge of other people doing that job, right? But you've never been trained in leadership. How are you meant to, you know, it's not your fault. You're just suddenly, suddenly you've got all these... I've got to take time off work, my mum's died, you know, you've got all this, all these problems, whereas, whereas a military officer looks at it and goes, my job is to look after these people, right? And if I look after these people, they're going to look after me and they're going to look after the mission. That's, that's second nature to a military leader. Whereas I think civilian leaders, obviously, broad brush, right? This is not speaking to all of them, but one of the observations I have is that many civilian leaders feel that they shouldn't interfere in people's lives, right? So if one of their subordinates comes to them and says, oh, my mum's died, obviously they say, I'm sorry, but they feel like they don't want to intrude because that's private space, right? Whereas often what that person wants is someone to put an arm around them, metaphorically, and say, how can we help? What do we need to do? People need helping, you know? All leadership is emotional. It's not, it's not kind of setting tasks, right? It's about making people feel good. And I feel a lot of civilian leaders are slightly reticent, probably because they haven't been given the training, they haven't been equipped to do it, but they feel very reticent about helping people or developing them to achieve the goals that they want to achieve. This is a really interesting and important point to raise, um, and it leads me to want to ask you whether you think it's a problem that fewer and fewer political leaders in the West have any first-hand military experience. I think it certainly detracts from their ability to use military force to achieve political ends, because I think that naturally... You know, if you're a politician, let's say you're the prime minister or whatever, you get briefings all the time on, you know, we've got a health problem, what do we do with it? You know, we're changing the benefit system, uh, we need to sort out the pension system, okay, the roads, there's a problem, right? And you'll be given a spreadsheet, and, uh, you know, and it's a kind of linear, like, here's the problem, and this is how we're going to approach it, and there's sort of stages and phases and all the rest of it. But strategy and military problems are not like that as we've said they're really highly psychological they're not they're not really technocratic there's lots of technology in war and you need to understand all sorts of important technological things but that's not the basis of it it's psychological and i think that many politicians it's ironic because they treat their elections as psychological but they treat policy problems as policy problems and often i think they treat defense stuff as a policy problem i often you know i was heavily involved in the afghanistan war and I saw it being talked about at a political level as if it was a policy problem. Like, you know, we're going to build these hospitals. You, know, you could almost imagine, strip out Hellman's. You know, they're talking about the UK. We're going to build some cottage hospitals and therefore that's going to do this. And but you can't apply that kind of linear spreadsheet approach to something like a conflict, which is deeply psychological. And if those politicians were schooled in war through experience, 
they would see that actually winning an election is like winning a battle. You write in the book, and I'm quoting here, quote, it may sound extraordinary and macabre that you will risk your soldiers' lives and seek to kill countless enemy soldiers simply to tell a story, but this is the difference between commanders that win wars and commanders that lose wars. And you go on to say, if you, as the overall commander of your forces, can tell a story that your troops, the enemy's troops, and the wider world population can understand, then you will be a successful military leader. You've moved into politics recently. We were just talking about that. Yeah. You're the Lib Dem candidate for Tunbridge Wells. So it's worth bringing politics in at this juncture as well. Populists are very good at telling stories mm. and making voters feel part of something bigger, something historic. But if stories can win wars, shouldn't more politicians, as you say, be using these to win elections too? And not yeah. just this is where we are under the current government and this is where we'll be if you vote for me, but stories that rouse voters to a purpose beyond the election cycle. Sure. I agree. You know, you can see politicians who've got that ability, and there are politicians that haven't, right? Um, so over the last 50 years of British politics, mm. probably the three most successful politicians have been Margaret Thatcher, yes. Tony Blair, mm -hmm. and Nigel Farage. Correct. Right. And all of them were able to tell a story, right? You probably need three things to be a successful political leader, right? You need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to organize an organization. This is an underrated bit of politics, but if you're, if you're gonna be a senior political leader, or if I'm the candidate in Tunbridge Wells, I am building an organization now to win in Tunbridge Wells, right? And if you're the prime minister, you're on top of a massive organization that you're running. And then the third thing you need as a good political leader is the ability to really think in detail about policy. Now, you're never going to communicate all of that detail, but when your ministers are coming to you and saying, here's our health policy, you need to be able to question them and say, that's great, but this here, no, 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 I've drilled down into this and I've pulled some other data. That's wrong. You've made the wrong decision there and here's why, right? So attention to detail, ability to communicate and ability to run an organisation, right? And if you look at those three politicians, Thatcher, Blair and Farage, you can see that they had slightly differing abilities, right? All three of them were able to tell stories, right? Which is interesting, isn't it? Because only two of them have been elected as Prime Minister. One of them has never been elected ever to the House of Commons, has been elected as an MEP. So that's really interesting. That tells us how important it is to be able to tell stories. You can get, you can get over the line by just telling stories, right? For years, we've been told that the future of war will be in cyber, that it will largely be invisible and in the hands of people who can program and manipulate intelligent machines. And a year before Russia invaded Ukraine, the UK government published an integrated review which set out to reduce investment in UK ground forces and prioritise investments in AI, space capabilities and so on. So looking back, not a plan in keeping with the times, but if you had sole grip on the purse strings of military spending in the UK, what would you be spending that money on? What scale of investment and in which specific areas do you think that money is needed to build a fully capable British army for the 21st century? So that, that depends <clears throat> on uh, exactly how large the budget is, right? But let me give you some principles. I think that clearly, the military and military spending is an area where technology moves very fast, right? And so there's a natural desire to keep up to the front of that technology curve, right? But always what we must do, and here's the first principle, is if we're going to keep up to that technology curve, we can't degrade our core capabilities, right? If you've got energy beam weapons and cyber attack, great. But they're useless if you haven't got any infantry. 
So once you've got an infantry of an appropriate size, and if you've got infantry, by the way, then you need tanks and artillery and all the other things that you need, like engineers. Then we can talk about some of this other stuff, which I think is very, very important, you know, cyber and all the rest of it. But there's no point in having that stuff unless you've got appropriate ground forces that are supported by Navy, all the rest of it, right? And there's a very simple reason for that. War is about human beings, it's not about technology. And if you don't have infantry, which is the core of the projection of any military force, and if you have infantry, you need tanks and artillery, then you can't do anything. You can have as much clever, geeky stuff as you like, but somebody will show you up. So that's, a, that's I think, the first thing. And then the second principle is, you know, comes back to strategy, right? For a long time, Britain has not had a strategy about what its place is in the world. For a long time, we were a balancing power between America and Europe, and that worked brilliantly, right? We're part of NATO. You know, we had a lot of anchors of our strategy that enabled us to do what we wanted to do. Um, well, we've obviously unmoored some of those foundations, and we haven't helped ourselves with our main, you know, the people that we mainly want to work with, which is the Americans, by reducing the size of our military, because what they want in Britain is a capable military power who can, you know, participate in... in conflicts with them policing the world order however you want to frame it so i think that the second thing is as well as that you know if you're going to do high tech then you've got to make sure you're doing the basics right britain hasn't really come to a conclusion about what its position is in the world and we've had this nonsense from boris johnson about global britain but come back to strategy if you don't have the resources to back up your goals it's just meaningless it's just waffle and the problem with waffle in the military sphere is you end up with a paper tiger and if you have a paper tiger you get found out ask vladimir putin right his paper tiger is being found out and paraded around the world stage and he looks like a complete idiot i do not want that to occur to the uk so we must set ourselves goals that are appropriate for our resources or we must increase our resources that are appropriate for the goals we set ourselves i think this is a big question we need to settle which is basically, is Britain a global power or are they a significant medium-sized power? I think we're the latter. And I think that in that role, we have a significant role within Europe, all the way up, basically our hemisphere. So Europe, stretching up to the Arctic, through North Africa, Africa, and down into the South Atlantic. Uh, that's about a third of the world or a quarter of the world where we are probably the preeminent military power that is where I think we should be focusing. I simply don't think we have the resources to be a global power, which means full spectrum capabilities, right? Everything from cyber to amphibious warfare to paratroopers to artillery to direct energy to satellite. We are not that big anymore. We simply cannot do that. There's nothing wrong to saying that we are a significant medium-sized power and here are the things that we seek to do in concert with our allies and partners. You listed there a range of capabilities. Could you describe what appears on the trump card of the ideal British Army? So the, the British Army needs to be able to conduct, I would argue, sustained divisional operations. It means you're able to put a division in the field and then replace it with another division every year or whatever, right? So a sustained operation. And that for a long time was a kind of cornerstone of British military policy, which was that we would always be able to put an armored division in the field to support an American coalition, effectively. If I look around the security environment in our neighborhood, we obviously have Ukraine and Russia and all the rest of it, but the Ukraine war is not the Ukraine war. The Ukraine war is 
we're discussing the eastern boundary of Europe. That's what that's about, right? That's why the Baltics are so engaged. That's why Poland is so engaged, right? That's the bigger question we're settling. But we also have a number of other issues um, that are not very, very far away. So if we look at areas of Africa like the Sahel, because of climate change, we've got collapsing ecosystems in that area. Um, that's an area of the world where the temperature goes up at twice the rate of what it does on average around the globe. So if the globe goes up two degrees, which is what we're all aiming for, Niger goes up four degrees. And that's also an area where the population growth is doubling, right? Uh, so it will double over the next 30 years. So at the moment, they've got uh, half a billion and they'll end up with a billion by 2050 or something like that. So over the next 30 years, that area of the world is going to see collapsing ecosystems and doubling population. So there's going to be a number of people that are going to be moving. And not just there, but the Middle East, all over the world, we're entering a great age of migration. And that will destabilize countries and that will require military force to restabilize those countries or indeed to fight wars. And so that is a people problem. And whilst we still need to have higher end capabilities that enable us to do peer-to-peer -peer stuff, we need that core. And then the ability to do a bit of peer-to-peer -peer stuff on top of that, so keeping on top of cyber. So that, to my mind, is what where we want to get to. And and if you look at the projected Army 2025 structures, we can barely deploy a brigade, which is a third of a division. So we're a long way away from that now. The war in Ukraine is not only the first war in Europe in 75 years, but it's also the first to be fully captured on social media. What have you found most striking about the role that social media has played? It's, it's how social media is leading the news agenda. It's amazing. What I found absolutely fascinating is, you know, the traditional correspondent, the television or radio correspondent model, or the newspaper journalist is you go to a town and then you stay there for a few days and you report on the town. You get some human stories that illustrate what's going on in that town. So it's a refugee flow or it's an attack or whatever, right? And then that, you tell that story. Now, let's say you're the BBC and you've got five correspondents in Ukraine in different areas and they're you know, telling different stories about what's happening in Zaporizhia, what's happening in Kyiv, what's happening in Kherson. And you listen to all of those reports. But really, you've got no idea what's going on in the war. You haven't got a clue. And so enter Twitter and Telegram and all the rest of it. And suddenly you get a situation where people like me or just members of the general public are able to look at all these different information streams and build up a much better picture of what's going on. So it's you know, akin to traditional military intelligence, but it's completely open source, right? And you, you top it up with some conversations with people that you know, and someone who's down there, you speak to them. And so you sort of verify stuff, ideas that you come up with. But effectively, on social media, you're in a much better position to know what's going on in the war writ large. And you can then generate a thread, which I've done, saying this is what I think is happening in the war. And then Sky News just turn it into a news story or Bloomberg carry it as a news story or the BBC ring you up and say, can you go on the world news to talk about whatever. Broadcasters who contact me always start with, we've just seen your thread. That's really interesting. Could you talk about that? And all I'm doing is collating all the information that's out there, applying some, you know, obviously I've got deep knowledge about the subjects and all the rest well, of it. Well, quite. I mean, I think it's been useful, actually, that a lot of real experts have been called in. Because one thing that people like yourself have done that we traditionally have very rarely gotten from news correspondence is what it means, what this could portend to further down the line. Speaking of morale, social media has also played a huge role in boosting morale for Ukrainian troops, has yeah. it not? I mean, it's about getting your side of the story across and getting the world on your side. And the inverse is true as well. With Kharkiv, the collapse in Kharkiv in the north, 
normally the Ukrainians are very careful about what they allow on social media, but they created a snowball effect up in the north by basically showing piles of Russian equipment abandoned. All the yeah. rest they, you know, the Russians are like, oh my god, and it's then all the Russians collapsed. see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, so that was, you know, they've been very, 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 very good at it. Killing it at the psychops. Um, yeah. One slot that you had recently, I think it was on Sky News. You appeared to say there that the war will be decided this summer. Yeah. Um, it's a terse but necessary question that follows. How do you see this war ending ultimately? Mm. Mm. So, the reason it's got to be decided this summer is because of the presidential elections in the US in 24, right? And it's, you know, if you look at the potential candidates there, there's no way that the $20 billion that the US is giving to Ukraine every year is not going to become a political football. That's far too risky for the Ukrainians. They've got to win this year. How do I see it turning out? I mean, I guess one way of looking at it is that there's actually no way that Russia can win, right? So Russia's stated aims at the moment are liberate as it calls it the Donbass and it might be able to do that although I've seen no evidence from their performance but let's say they get lucky and they manage to do that then what what do they declare peace no they then they own Ukrainian territory the Ukrainians are still going to carry on attacking them right so there's there's actually no way that the Russians can complete the war without taking over the whole of Ukraine and they can't do that they've already admitted they can't do that they've scaled back those objectives Whereas the Ukrainians have a pretty clear goal, which is to oust Russian troops from the sovereign territory of Ukraine, right? And I think the Ukrainians understand very well that they're not going to do that by killing every last Russian in Ukraine. That's not the that's not the goal. War is psychological. I think they understand that very well, and they are looking to create some sort of effect on the battlefield in Ukraine, which causes a change of power in Moscow. You know, Putin's totally tied up with this war. He inaugurated the Kerch Bridge. The whole Crimean thing was part of his Russian rejuvenation. So if the war in Ukraine goes back sufficiently in a way that can't be spun to the, you know, the Russian public, then there are lots of factions in the Russian information space. You know, we've got mercenaries and different bits of the army and security services, and he sort of plays them off against each other. But... It seems to me that's quite an unstable system. And I think what the Ukrainians are seeking to do is create enough of a psychological effect in Moscow based on what they do on the battlefield in Ukraine that causes some shifting sands in Moscow. It's very unlikely to be Putin to change his mind unless he's forced to. I see the route through it as him being taken out of power and someone else coming in and suing for peace. Mike, I'm in awe of your knowledge, your understanding, and I'll continue to be uh, reading your threads, your posts, and even those maps that you draw on the toilet. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for uh, inviting me here to Sankey's. It's been wonderful to, to taste the delicious seafood, to sit here. And it's the Pantiles. Yeah. Once again, pleasure. Thanks, Jack.